Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. So clearly, I'm a little obsessed with hoaxes this week. You heard earlier this week from Matthew Goodman. I have another hoax I want to talk about today. This one involves a woman who was believed to have given birth to rabbits. 18th century England. My next guest is Karen Harvey. She wrote about this remarkable tale. It is remarkable. Um, Her book is called The Imposterous Rabbit Breeder, Mary Toft and 18th century England. You're going to hear about the woman who claimed that she gave birth to rabbits. She was not alone, by the way, in making these claims. Here I am with Karen Harvey. Welcome to the podcast, Karen Harvey, author of The Imposterous Rabbit Breeder, Mary Toft and 18th Century England. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's, it's going to be lovely to talk to you uh, and, and, to, uh, and to hopefully give something interesting for your listeners too. Well, this story is fascinating. I'm a bit interested these days in hoaxes. This is a particularly interesting one. Let's set the stage first. We are in 18th century England. Mary Toft is a cloth worker, a poor woman, an illiterate woman. And we're talking about a moment in her life where there's a lot, there's increased regulation of poor people by landowners. Can you just set the stage a little bit for, <laughs> uh, for what her mm. life was like and what she was uh, what she was confronting before the big story happened. Sure, yeah, of course. So, yeah, so she lives in a, a small town called Godalming, which isn't far from London. It's a very modest town, and it's a town that, like many in England, in early 18th century England, um, are witnessing a kind of increasing division between the rich and the poor. And Mary Toft, who's 23, when the story really gets going, is part of the poor. Um, she is, as you say, she's illiterate. She's a, a sort of daily paid worker. Her husband is a cloth worker. She probably takes part in that trade, but she also works in the fields where she's paid just pennies. She's very disadvantaged in, in lots of ways. And also this is a highly patriarchal society and she's a woman. So she suffers those sorts of disadvantages um, and suspicions and mistrust and misogyny that's riven throughout this society, as well as the, you know, being lower class. We're also talking about a time where not a whole lot is known about women's bodies. There was a moment in history, for instance, where people or doctors thought that women were dying in childbirth, not because of bacteria and diseases, but instead because of the emotional trauma that I guess women um, were thought to be subject to. So she's poor, she's illiterate. It's a moment where women are really relegated to quite a second-class status. So one day Mary is in the fields and she says she sees some rabbits. And after she sees the rabbits, she reports that she developed an insatiable craving for rabbit. And then, Karen, what happens? Right. So, well, I guess I guess a couple of things happen. I mean, the first thing that supposedly happens is that having seen those rabbits and felt that desire for those rabbits, 
those sort of images and desires change what's happening in her body and she's pregnant. So those images of the rabbit start to transform what's inside her. We can discuss how that happens or how that might have happened or how they might have believed that happened in a moment, perhaps. But the other thing that happens, I think, is definitely real and it's material and it's physical. And she explains in a number of different uh, stories or at a number of different occasions that she starts to have a miscarriage and that that's triggered by seeing the rabbit and by running after the rabbit. And it actually starts when she's working in the field. Pieces start to emerge from her body and, and over a period of weeks, this gets a little bit worse until it's all over for a while. <laughs> so those are the two things that happen after, the, after she sees the rabbits. I point out the lack of familiarity uh, with women's bodies, which is why perhaps she didn't know she was having a miscarriage or she did, but she reports that she's given birth to rabbits, right? Like she believes or says that she believes that she has given birth to rabbits. How is that received uh, once this story makes the rounds? Okay, so after the miscarriage is concluded, then other things start to come from her body. They're quite separate events. And in that, that second sort of series of events, she definitely says that they are rabbits or parts of rabbits. And all of the people around her say that they're, they're parts of rabbits as well. And that's really important that she's not on her own. She's part of a team. People see this as a kind of wonder, our response might be, and some of your listeners' responses might be, you know, well, this just sounds crazy. For these people, this was, this was possible. It wasn't common, but there'd been stories circulating for centuries that it, that it could happen. And it was because they thought that what a woman saw and felt and thought would affect materially the, the unborn child inside her. And so it kind of made sense. More to the point, you know, there were actually material things. There were parts of rabbits that, crucially, doctors saw. And the involvement of the doctors is so crucial because whilst for a little while they might have believed a poor woman and, and her poor family around her, you know, doctors held a really high status in this society. They're all men, of course. They're all highly trained and educated. And so when the first doctor says, wait a minute, these, these look like rabbits or parts of rabbits, this is a real live monstrous birth, which is what they thought it was, everybody started flocking and, and it was covered in the press. The press started to explore it. It wasn't talked about as a hoax initially. It was talked about as this sort of wonder, potentially horrific, but nevertheless something that was potentially actually going on. And, and that's where all the investigations begin. And she's subject to a lot of investigations by a lot of different people, and many of them very powerful in this society. In fact, the king, the king of England hears this story about a woman in the country giving birth to rabbits, and he wants to know more. Doesn't he dispatch his, like the royal surgeon, to investigate her and investigate these mysterious rabbit births? Yeah, you're exactly right. Not just one, but two of the doctors of George I go explore and examine Mary Toff's body and, and to witness this 
yeah, this wonder, this sort of miraculous, monstrous birth. That takes place for a short while that they're so keen. And I think the king in particular is so keen to get to the bottom of this. You know, if if they're able to prove that this is really happening, this would be the first time that, that people had really witnessed this live, right? That there'd been stories circulating for centuries, but they were all kind of word of mouth, right? That nobody could say, I actually stood at the foot of the bed of the woman and saw this happening. And Mary Toff's case was just so exciting for these professionals because that's what she potentially represented. And so she was taken to London. I think the king was behind that, um, bringing her to London so that more and more doctors and other very powerful people could could really see and, and witness what, what was happening and really scrutinise it. You know, these we might think that these doctors were credulous and ill-informed with retrospect, with hindsight, but actually, you know, they, they used methods that we would recognize as scientific you know they observed her they conducted experiments on on the animal part and they did that for a short while really trying to make sure that they had it right you know so they applied all of their scientific methods to the case of course they discovered that what they thought may have been happening of course wasn't happening at all a woman can't gestate rabbits so, yeah, so it was revealed to be a hoax. But for a long time, it was thought that this could actually be happening. Well, because before the hoax was revealed and you talked about the complicity of other people, like, you know, the team of folks around her, was there not a local doctor, not one of the Kingsmen, local physicians who reported seeing actual animal parts come from her body? Weren't there physicians who reportedly said, yes, we saw these rabbit parts come from her? Yeah, you're right. There was one local doctor who said that, but he was quickly joined by another doctor sent by the king. And then once Mary had been brought to London, a third doctor, and they all said that they had seen the parts come out of her body. Now, to some extent, they were telling the truth because the facts of the case were that there were animal parts, rabbit parts, that were taken from her body. So actually, these men did see those parts exiting from her body or they removed them. To all intents and purposes, it really looked like they were actually coming from inside inside her body. That's That's not, of course, true. What happened was somebody or some people put those animal parts into Mary Toff's body. It's a really gruesome story. I just want to try to repeat the chronology and tell me if this fits with your theory of the case. She had an actual miscarriage at some point, very likely, right? So that's part one. Part two There are real theories circulating that today make no sense, but they are real, they are theories that are actually circulating at the time that a woman's emotional state will change what is inside of her. Um, And that's what I alluded to earlier. People really know nothing about the female body. They're winging it and moving forward with uh, superstition and fantasy. So, but this is a real theory. So she has a miscarriage. She sees rabbits. 
She says it's rabbit parts, but at some point, what was maybe an actual misunderstanding becomes a deliberate hoax because then she ends up with rabbit pieces inside her that she allegedly gives birth to in front of some of these medical observers. The king dispatches two physicians, and at some point, the jig is up. How is it revealed? Or how does, how does the hoax come to light? How do people realize that this is not what um, it had been cracked up to be? So I think there are two things that happen. One of them creates some serious suspicions and one of them, you know, just means the game is up. So the first one is that they, they do some experiments on parts of the animals that they extract from her body. And a crucial experiment there is that they take the lungs of the, a rabbit and they see if they float in liquid and they float. And that means that those lungs have air inside. And that means that the animal from which those lungs were taken, the rabbit, had breathed and lived in the open air, not inside a woman's body, right? So that starts to raise suspicions, but still, but still, they're not sure. In retrospect, several of the doctors say, oh, yeah, I saw that and I knew. I knew it was a hoax, but they don't call it. They're not sure. The game is only really up when the porter the guy who's managing the flow of, of people in and out of the establishment where she's kept in London, confesses or, or, or reports to the justice of the peace. So he's a, a member of the, the court and he's now observing everything that's happening because he definitely thinks there's something wrong. So it's sort of the start of a criminal investigation. The porter says to the justice of the peace, they're smuggling in rabbits through the back door. And of course, it, it's, it's all up. The justice of the peace then goes in and really starts to put pressure on Mary Toft to confess because they know that the rabbits are not coming from within her. They're coming from outside. They're being smuggled in and somehow somebody is getting them inside Mary Toft's body so they can then be taken out again by the doctors. And that initiates a really, in some ways, I mean, there are many dreadful parts of this story, but in some ways, the most sort of dreadful part of the story, which is where, you know, she's really put under pressure to confess. And that period takes, it's about a period of four or five days where they interrogate her repeatedly. And if you bear in mind the sort of, you know, the physical ordeal that she'd been through, this woman, whether willingly or not, she's she's really unwell at this stage, very weak, undoubtedly has an a terrible infection, so probably quite dangerously ill, and they treat her very badly in order to get a confession out of her, which they kind of do and kind of don't. She puts the blame on, on other people. Who does she blame? To what does she confess? What's her version of how all of this came about? Well, I guess that's why I hesitate about saying that she confessed because she, she never says that she did it, right? She, she never says that it was her. She always perhaps naturally sort of displaces the blame. Why wouldn't you? She's extremely poor. She's a woman. She represents the most disenfranchised in this society in rural England. And she's speaking to, you know, an extremely powerful man who represents the criminal justice system of the king. 
who she blames sort of changes subtly over the statements that survive from these interrogations, which are the most remarkable documents. In the first one, she talks about a woman, this sort of shadowy woman. This woman doesn't have a name. She's the wife of a man who grinds knives. So she's the wife of the knife grinder, and she's really kind of sinister, not just because she's associated with knives, but because she kind of comes in, Mary Toft says, she comes into the house and sort of coerces Mary Toft to go through with this hope. She says that she'll get some money if she does that. Mary Toft doesn't give a name, despite being pressured. She doesn't give a name. She gives the occupation and she says, actually, I can't tell you who this woman woman is because she's she and her husband travel around the country grinding knives. So I didn't know who she was. She just wafted through the town and then she set everything going and then she left. But this, her, her story changes in subsequent interrogations. And, and ultimately, that really shadowy woman, the, the wife of the knife grinder, she turns into a different figure who Mary Toff does know and she knows very well. And it's her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law has always been part of the story Mary says at the start, you know, her mother-in-law is a midwife, that she was there right from the start, right next to her, looking over her shoulder as all this was going on. And gradually, Mary sort of blames her mother-in-law until the final interrogation where, you know, the JP opens. The opening question is something like, you know, okay, who put you up to this? And she just comes back immediately. It was my mother-in-law. It is... Interesting. I mean, and the mother-in-law piece makes sense because she's a midwife. And so you've got to think about how these, I mean, it's just, Karen, it's hard to even say this. It's, you have to think about how these rabbit parts got into a woman's body. Right. How do you see her? I think as one hears this story, it sounds like there are so many quick conclusions that you could come to, you know, she came up with this, she and people came up with this in order to gain fame and or fortune. On that point, is there any evidence of her having received any money for this? Do we know, uh, we know she got famous, but do we know that it made any material difference in her financial circumstances or any difference? Do we know that she got any money whatsoever? It's such a good question. No, although there's the promise of money by a couple of people who she blames for the hoax, there is no evidence at all that she got a penny. You know, people in this time in London would pay to see these wondrous, curious, monstrous, weird things, but there's no evidence at all. There's no record that anyone paid her for anything. So, she she made nothing. They made nothing out of this financially. She did become famous or maybe infamous. I mean, she she becomes a real figure of, of hate. That The media goes crazy when the, the case starts because everyone's curious and think, thinks it could be true. As soon as it's shown not to be true, she's completely vilified. I think it's a loss for her. You know, it's a loss of reputation. I think it's a loss of power. How do I see her? I think lots of historians have have seen her as the kind of mastermind, as having volition and agency and making these choices, you know, misguided as it turns out they were. I don't see her like that at all. I mean, having studied this for years, having looked at every single document I could find really closely and tried to kind of put all these contrasting 
sometimes conflicting stories together. I don't see her like that at all. I think I see her as a victim, actually. I see her as starting out without really very much power at all. She's 23 when it happens. She's 17 when she gets married. By the time she is 23 and, and the hoax starts, she has one child living. We know another of her children has died. She has had a prolonged miscarriage. She's gone through a lot already. She's poor. She's a woman. And I think the people around her take advantage of her. And actually, terrible as it might seem, and, and it's, you know, I think upsetting and, and, and sad to realize this, but I actually think it was probably the older women around her that took advantage of her. And that's, for me, almost as horrific as the, as the, the kind of physical truth of the hoax itself, right? That these women sort of gathered around her and I, and I think compelled her to, to do this. For what purpose is not entirely clear to me. I think that's probably the the bit of the story that I wish I could tell more reliably. I wish I could fill in that gap. I think there's something very, very wrong between these women within these within this group of women, their relationships. There's there's something odd, there's something murky. And I think we know that because she blames her mother-in-law, which after all is a a relatively young woman is a relatively brave thing to do. It's quite a statement there, I think, about the relationship she has with her mother-in-law. So I can't quite tell you why they, they did it, but I think they did it. I think the women sort of compelled her, urged her at least to go through with this, which is pretty dark. It is a dark, fascinating, troubling hard to believe a story that I think says a lot. It says a lot about uh, how women were treated, about the relationships of women to each other. It just, I, I, there are so many layers to it. Uh, the best way to really digest it is for people to read your great book, The Impostress Rabbit Breeder, Mary Toft and 18th Century England by my guest, Karen Harvey. Karen, thank you so much. By the way, Karen is in England, and so she stayed up really late to do this. Thank you so much, Karen. I'm going <laughs> to let you go now. You should, <laughs> I'm going to let oh. you go. Thank but you. Thank that you. was a pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> 